0: Hello and welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask the obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly and Travis Buchanan. Well, as always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at sowhatpodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episode can be submitted by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for the What Podcast. Well, we are excited and honored to be joined today by Drs. Alberto Garcia and John Nunes, co-authors of the recently published Wittenberg Meets the World, Reimagining the Reformation at the Margins. Dr. Garcia is Professor Emeritus of Theology at Concordia University, Wisconsin, and is also Director of the Lay Ministry Program there. He is an ordained Lutheran pastor and co-editor of Critical Issues in Ecclesiology. Dr. Nunes is president of Concordia College, New York. He's an ordained Lutheran pastor and author of Voices from the City, Issues and Images of Urban Preaching, published by Concordia. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for being on So What Podcast.
1: Thank you. Great to be here, Kyle.
0: I'm very happy
1: to
2: be here with you, Kyle.
0: Well, the story of the Protestant Reformation is so often framed as a Eurocentric narrative. Martin Luther, a German, sparks the event, which is carried on by other men like John Calvin, who is French, and Thomas Cranmer, who's English. And then the story goes that the movement spills over into colonial America, where the story predominantly follows Protestant European settlers through the colonies and eventually to a Euro-Protestant majority nation in the late 18th century. The story, however, continues on to the present, where American Protestantism has an embarrassingly rich diversity of ethnicities, not to mention its impact on the globe. And yet we still think of this movement stereotypically as a Protestant, especially Lutheran, movement being of people from European descent primarily. And here, gentlemen, in the book that you've written is where you want to push back against that stereotype to reimagine a world that, frankly, is right under our nose Protestants, specifically Lutherans, who are, to borrow Martin Marty's words from his Ford in your book, Black Ethiopian rather than white American, or Tanzanian rather than Wisconsinian. So gentlemen, if you could, tell us a little bit about why you were motivated to write this book and perhaps how you wish it will accomplish its goal of reimagining Lutheranism as a multi-ethnic Protestant movement.
2: There are I'm aware reformations already in the Catholic Church that were occurring parallel to Lutheranism. One of those reformations was during the 16th century taking effect in the Caribbean and in um, South America. For example, we have a man by the name of Montesinos and Father Las Casas, who were criticizing the Spaniards' European way of being cruel to the people, and they rose up and said that the gospel, a gospel of love, uh, was very much present there for the people. What I think, um, if you see in our book, is that there is a Luther with a lot of richness there That we ignore because it it is not so much that Luther is European, the way that he's portrayed, but that the European frame reference portrays certain things that leave other things of Luther out. For example, Luther's lectures on the minor prophets are very, very prophetic. Luther speaks against that doctrine that might be salutary, but when it is used for the purpose of aggrandizing ourselves, for the purpose of ignoring those people who are at the bottom or at the margins, this is simply idolatry. So our book does is, for me at least, it's not so much to say that go against everything that Luther said or say that it is wrong, but rather that there are certain things in Luther that have been ignored and can be lifted up to speak at the margin. And Luther actually, a mistaken thing that some people do is keep him away from the earth and earthly matters, and he does it. Luther criticizes those who oppress the poor. Luther criticizes those who enrich themselves while proclaiming right doctrine, but they do it for their own purposes. But in other words, what Luther criticizes is what I call Luther calls to idolatry.
0: So when you are thinking about the story of Lutheranism, do you see it as occurring? Almost simultaneously, both in the old and the new world, it's not strictly a European movement that was exported to European colonies.
2: No, in fact, there's a very well known Reformation scholar at Yale. His name is Carlos Eri, who wrote a book on the Reformation recently. The way that the Reformation is looked at is not one Reformation, but they are reformations. Granted, that Luther's Reformation. Is the the most important impact. But there are other reformations that are dealing with specific matters, for example, of human value, dealing with things. Even though the voices have not been heard of their very small voices, that Luther, in, in fact, has something to say about that for us today. But what we need to do then is, since the other Reformation came from other questions, questions that dealt with people at the periphery, those same questions need to be asked today because of our situation in the United States and other parts of the world.
0: So to neglect this aspect of the Reformation has a big impact on our imagination of what both the movement is and what the movement did and what it continues to do today. Now, Dr. Nunes, this is very similar to something that I found very profound in just the preface of your book, where you write that imagination is the embryo of either anxiety or creativity. So it really does matter what we think this event means in our own imaginations. So, could you speak to this question, what are the dangers in framing Lutheranism in specific, and Protestantism more generally, as primarily a Eurocentric story or a Eurocentric movement, and to overemphasize certain aspects about the Reformation while downplaying the peripheral elements of it?
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Kyle. I could not agree more with my colleague, Dr. Garcia, in terms of his fundamental statement about the framework with which we read Luther, or the hermeneutic with which we interpret Martin Luther. And so one of the things I think that joins him and me is that we have a dual commitment, Alberto and I do, to both a Lutheran confessional tradition on the one hand, And a post-colonial framework for both reading and interpreting both Luther and interpreting the context in which we find ourselves. So clearly, the anxiety-producing shift that we see in the Lutheran movement, anyway, globally, is that the average Lutheran now looks like, as you stated in your earlier comments, an Ethiopian or a Tanzanian or an East African, not like a European. So this tsunami-like demographic shift in the Lutheran world, which is even more profound if you look at the numbers of people who are in church on a Sunday morning, I mean, not just those who belong to a state church in a Nordic or Germanic country, but those who are actually in church, and when you look at the future of the church in terms of the age proportionality of those emerging churches in Latin America and the continent of Africa, We have a choice when we face that kind of reality. Do we kind of resort to uh, anxiety about what's going to happen to us because, you know, Lutheranism is shifting and changing? Or do we engage in a kind of creative action in which we find uh, ways to be as culturally relevant, to just use a simple term, as we are theologically grounded? And that's what Dr. Garcia and I have attempted to do. In this book.
2: One thing that I would like to add to what John has said is that what he's saying that is happening is occurring in Africa, for example, is gradually beginning to occur in the United States. For example, in our Lutheran church, there are churches that were completely no Germans in Milwaukee or German descent in the downtown area. A couple of years ago, they began work, and now, for example, in one service, they have over 200 people. Yet, here is the question. I have heard from a Mexican lady there who is, pardon me, legal in this country, where she's being asked to leave town, to leave town. down, okay? because she doesn't belong in the United States. So those are the kind of questions of anxiety and problems that the people at the margins are facing. How do we find a gracious and loving God in the midst of the problems we're facing in the United States of America?
0: How do you gentlemen think that Reformation theology can assist in this opportunity? that Lutheranism has to move forward?
1: That's a great question, Kyle. And we've actually attempted to organize our book in just that way. In other words, we feel there's something about justification that cannot be interpreted without questions of justice. And Alberta can say a lot more about that. We feel that, you know, when we talk about Koinonia, what does it mean that we form a Christian community? You got to ask questions about, you know, how that community is defined and where the boundaries and the borders of that community are. So, the way we can kind of organize the book is to appeal to the ancient sources. One of the things that Dr. Garcia and I share in common is a fundamental belief that the historically or confessionally lobotomized have nothing with which to be creative. In other words, that the embryo of creativity is to pay attention to our history and theology, not to run away from it. He was mentioning, for example,
2: justification, okay? When Luther, if you read the first chapter of the book, when Luther faced the whole issue of justification, the people of his time were looking at the justification of a person from a religious perspective as carrying out justice, punishing people. Yet Luther read in the scriptures and found that justification. Is the way that God calls people out of darkness and calls them worthy. So, seeing that in terms of the contemporary situation, for example, how does God look at Maria who lives down in the street of, let's say, Chicago, wherever, New York City? Does God look at her because he is looking at her? In terms of the infraction of a law, although God looks at a way of calling her worthy, a person that God loves, a person that God calls out of darkness, a person that God lifts up with his unconditional love. And that is the question.
0: That's good. I wonder, Dr. Garcia, you mentioned earlier talking about bringing Reformation theology into the present to be able to apply it to multi-ethnicity within the Lutheran movement. Are there other thinkers? So you mentioned specifically there was one sort of Reformation going on in colonial Spain. Are there things that we could learn from minor players, we'll say, who were specifically dealing with the issue of marginalization during the Reformation that we could bring forward to today as an example?
2: The people that mostly were involved in this, where should we say, at least in the 16th century, were mostly Roman Catholics. However, in the later years, we find this idea impacting other communities of faith. By communities of faith, I mean evangelicals and reform. The problem is that in Latin America, when the evangelicals and the Catholics get together back then, I think the Reformation people could barely breathe because not only there were a small movement, but they had to answer the very many attacks and dominance of the Catholic Church in Latin America. Okay. So this is the problem. That's why I cannot bring you uh, names that many. But in the United States in the last few years, there have been quite a few people who are father to that reinterpretation.
1: Actually, I, I have a name to throw in who isn't from the Reformation era, Kyle, if I may. Okay, yeah. So I would say someone who was helpful in that project of reimagination when he confronted a crisis in the church and a crisis among theologians and a crisis in his nation is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Oh yes, um, you know who clearly spends, similarly, considerable time re-examining questions of, you know, fundamental doctrine. For example, when Bonhoeffer looks at the notion of the image of God, as we see in Genesis 1.26, that all humans are created in God's image. He actually spends considerable time in his Genesis commentary digging deeply into what is the meaning that the other is created in the image of God. Is it merely an analogy of ontology that humans are kind of miniaturized gods, like God is all-knowing, so humans Mm don't have some knowledge. And he actually reverts to what he calls the analogy of relationship or analogia. Relacionis, you know, under the pressure of this kind of uh, final solution, anti-Semitism, obviously, treatment of those with disabilities. He says, no, no, if you don't take seriously the analogy of relationship, namely God as Father, Son, and Spirit in divine relationship, then you can't take seriously what it means that we are created in the image of God. There's a notion of recognition of the other. So Bonnet already starts us, I think, down a road, that is very usable for part of the project that we're talking about.
2: And by the way, when we talk about Bonhoeffer from a very practical perspective, he was a man who lived at the margins, not only in terms of with Judaism, but also uh, when he came to the United States, he was part of the African-American community. He spent time with the Spanish-speaking education in Spain. In other words, he was people who were different than the typical European Lutherans.
0: This is very helpful. I I couldn't help but think, too, when we're talking about, specifically, maybe to back up to one question, but to wrap up this this section of our conversation, uh, sola fide, justification by faith alone, was one of the pillars of the Reformation. And I don't think it's any surprise, then, that if we take ourselves to Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 through 28, specifically verse 28, is this famous phrase that Paul gives that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. In the kingdom of God, there shouldn't be marginalized community because we are all unified through the Lord Jesus. Earlier in this passage, to get to this conclusion, Paul says in verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. And so justification by faith alone sets him in a trajectory that concludes oneness in the Lord Jesus despite diversity. I think that's a very, very helpful point to make. Thank you. Well, gentlemen, one of the questions we like to ask here on the show is, well, so what? Why do these things matter in our everyday lives? I think some of them are very obvious. But why should we take time to reimagine the Reformation in themes as it relates to Black and Hispanic and other perspectives that are traditionally at the margins?
1: I think the so what is because when we engage in this work of reimagining the Reformation from the margins, We are engaging in work that God is up to. I think God is up to disruption in the great traditions in order that these traditions might be creatively disruptive and find new life in the spirit. We're describing really well, you know, God's vision for who we are as humans and what Christ has done to abolish the dividing wall and what Christ has done to create a new community where these kind of superficial categories diminish in terms of their significance. That's one of the takeaways that we can get from the emerging church, is it can take us out of a kind of cultural captivity in which our faith, no matter from what cultural tradition is defined, is confused with our culture. In other words, where we have enmeshed faith and culture in ways that that blur uh, the vision of Christ for the church and for the world. So I think part of this work is creative disruption for the sake of the life of the church. And uh, Dr. Garcia actually has a really interesting translation about Christ who comes as our disruptor. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're actually praying for disruption. When we pray that God would stir up his spirit and come among us, you know, we're praying for a sort of disruption. Because it's in that disruption that we find kind of new life. So it's actually for the sake of the church. It's not for the sake of the destruction of the church, but for the sake of the creative disruption of patterns that are just ungodly and unholy.
2: And Luther is always bringing the reality. If you read through his works, one thing that is very, very much in mind of Luther, how we break the first commandment, which is, When we honor ourselves rather than God, or in other words, when we become theologians of glory rather than theologians of the cross. And that happens in every epoch of history. It happened within every
1: culture. It happened everyone.
0: Well, that's good, gentlemen. Do you have any closing thoughts that you would like to bring up before we end?
1: I have one closing thought. I want to thank you, Kyle not only for the opportunity to be on this podcast and to ask the hard question of so what, that necessary question. Luther asked a similar question. Luther would say, what does this mean? (laughs) I mean, you got the command, but then what does this mean for us? So it's not only that, you know, Alberto and I can have a chance to be on this program, but I think it's really, really important that people, whose voices have historically been, you know, marginalized, you know, will have a space and a place for their voices divine voice. And I thank Erdman Press for doing that. And I thank you also. uh, Yes,
2: I thank him very much. I'd like to kind of end in terms of a story of love. As you know, since September 11, uh, even in the United States, we have become very much we against them, even among Christians. And so I like to end in terms of what you said in terms of justification. Justification for Luther is pretty much the so what question grounded on another sola that I like to give only to the agape of God. And I'm going to end with a very an explanation of Luther's Heidelberti number 18. In a brief sentence, this is what he says that a person is loved not because there are he or she is lovely, but they are lovely because they are loved. In other words, we don't love a person because they have something good to offer, but we love a person because God loves them first.